Welcome back to Manufacturing Hub. Today, it's going to be me and Dave recapping and having conversations around standardization in automation. We have a pretty good, I want to say, curriculum slash list of things we want to hit on today's conversations. And that's going to be hardware standardization, software, data, as well as more process and business-oriented standardization to follow the conversations in a general sense that we've had with our guests last month, since now we are in August. But so during the month of July, we run a theme of standardization and automation. I think we have some really good perspectives to offer since we've been in this industry for quite a bit of time and we have definitely encountered problems, but also opportunities with standardizing. Dave, if you want to kick us off, what are your initial thoughts on the conversation we've had with Garrett? Yeah, absolutely. So I will just recap for all the listeners, maybe the folks who haven't listened. So episode 122, we had Garrett Williams on from Siemens. Episode 123, we welcome Bobby Paul back on to continue the conversation around standardization. Episode 124, we had Jim Gavigan on talking more about the data side. And episode 125, we had Preston Hadley. He was just on a couple of days ago in real time, maybe a couple of days or a week ago in podcast time. We were talking very much about business process and process standardization. And I think that is the overarching theme of standardization and automation. We came in and I felt like we had a narrow, oh, some of us had more of a narrow thought of, hey, do we go standardize on a, on a particular PLC or HMI or VFEs or any of those things? And that, to some extent, is how we started out the conversation with Garrett Williams. Garrett has worked with Siemens for an extended period of time. He spent a bit of time with a systems integrator hat on and now gets to have a bunch of awesome conversations with a bunch of really great organizations throughout the U.S. and very probably throughout North America. And I think that beyond, and kind of key takeaway from the conversation we had with Garrett, is standardization isn't just picking one brand of hardware and sticking with it. Standardization is standardizing your HMI screens, is reducing the number and quantity of different items that you have on stock and helping to allow basically everything to move easier so that if there is an issue, it's not a, okay, which of the three dozen pieces of this hardware do we have or which of the seven different software licenses do I need to go use here? It's a, hey, this is, it's binary. It's we choose one or the other and then are able to move forward because we very quickly know what the answer to at least that high-level problem is going to be. I would say that for me, Dave, like what's interesting is, and bec and I guess the reason why this conversation is not as black or white as it probably could be is the fact that it's very nuanced, right? So I think that everybody understands that you would want to standardize on a single platform, right? But as we've seen at the very least in the last couple of years, there's been number one shortages, but there's also opportunities, right? So if you are standardized on a single vendor, maybe there's a vendor that comes out with a technology, whether it is on the hardware software side that you can now leverage by having that knowledge, right? And so that's why maybe sometimes I make the point of maybe you standardize on most of your stuff and then sometimes you do experiments so that your engineers know what is available outside of that. But I do agree that the basic need is to keep things the same so that you could very easily pull that same part. You obviously have the know-how on how to replace it. But again, there's these like interesting edge cases. And I think that's where maybe facilities struggle. But also there's the nuance of you don't always get to pick and choose, right? And we've discussed this a little bit off stream, depending on what your purchasing power is or negotiating power, whatever you want to call it, you may reach out to a vendor of a specific machine and you can certainly ask them to create that machine in a different control system, right? So if they're going to be, let's say, based out of Germany or based out of Europe in general, chances are they will be standardized on Siemens. If you're looking to bring this back to the US, you probably have a lot more workforce that's on Allen Bradley. And so you will have to ask them again. And this involves if you're going to buy 100 machines or one machine, you may get a different answer. But what I'm trying to get to is that you may not go get what you want from your standpoint, and you'll have to make the choice. Do we live with a now new 
control system at our facility or do we retrofit or replace that control system for the one we need, which ultimately is cost, time, and an effort, right? So either you pay the machine builder more or you eat that cost by having, let's say, your engineering team sign on reworking that. And I can tell a, a brief story, Dave, like on that side, in one of my first employers, I was working on this project with an unwind machine that at the time was using a system called the Red Rock Labeler. And so this is a US-based company, but long story short, they use this Parker control system with the servo drives to unwind, the, essentially check the labels and apply them to the product. And when we reached out to multiple vendors inside the US, those unwind or labeler machines did not have like an Allen Bradley standard control system and they were unwilling to budge, right? So we, we could buy what they had in stock, but they would not redo the hardware and software for us. So what ended up happening is we purchased the mechanical machine, we gutted all the control system, and then we replaced it and tied it into an existing Allen Bradley infrastructure. And the comment could be made, that cost us six times the price of that machine. So in terms of the resources, but also the hardware and software. And so if you're a smaller manufacturer, you may not have that buffer, right? So you would essentially live with this machine with a, it was not even a, it was not even a PLC. It was this circuit board that control fairly basic motors. But anyways, long story short, I think that there's a lot of nuances in those decisions. I wonder maybe if you have some stories to share on the hardware side and what you've experienced. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you bring up a really good point before I go into a couple of stories. But from my side, we've talked about standardization, right? And we talk a lot about standardization for the first three of these episodes this month, very much from the perspective of the end user, right? So why should a manufacturing company create standards? With Jim, it was begging anyone to, to go pick a data model and then just stick with the data model. It matters less as to where you go normalize everything but more so that you pick something and stick with it and you create a standard. But I think Preston brought up a good point, and I want to make sure that we hit this early, is that standardization exists within systems integrators and it exists within especially machine builders themselves. There are lots of machine builders who, to your story, Vlad, they're like, this is what we build, or maybe we purchase this from the company that makes it, this is the only thing that we stock. We don't have the people or the knowledge or the skills or any desire to warranty anything that is completely different from the other 99% of these that exist out there. So I think it's completely reasonable to get to the point of the conversation where an end user is, hey, this is what I want. I only have control logic. Sorry, I only have S7 1500s. Everything in my facility has to have those because that's what everything is because my guys know how to use it. And I've got three of them on stock so that if something breaks, I can go ahead and pull them in. And I, both of those are completely valid points. To your point about the labeler, I've done a number of projects, especially when we go to look to bring equipment over into, into the US. I've done a couple of projects in Germany where I specifically remember they were Siemens S7 1500s and I embedded a resource at the machine builder for four months. And he went through line by line on TIA portal going and putting it into a, I think it was a control logic at that point. It was probably a safety control logic, knowing what the machine was, or at least I hope it was now looking back because I don't particularly remember. Um, it, it should have been a safety system, um, but he went, he lived there for three or four months. And I've done the same thing in Italy. I've done the same thing in a couple of other locations of you and better resource. And it gets built that way. And at least it gets tested that way. I've also done the, hey, the machine comes over. We prove that it works, right? We, we prove that it works. We do the runoff and then it's immediately down and we literally gut everything in the system and we rip it out and we put the controls in that, that we want. I think that's not, it's not uncommon, right? I would think that most people that have been in the business long enough and have worked with enough end users have gone through that process once or twice, or there are probably people listening to this that, that only focus doing that. I, and I'm sure it would be an I'm sure it would be an interesting job and an interesting opportunity when it comes to that. So to that point, I feel like standardization is important, and it is very possible 
that you may have to go bring in a third or a fourth party in order to go make sure that this standardization is completed, to go make sure that the standardization is complete, to, to make sure that everyone is satiated. I think that kind of one key point that I should bring out is if you go through and rip out all of the controls and a brand new piece of equipment that you've just purchased, there is probably very little chance that you will have any sort of warranty, right? It's pretty, as the saying goes, you break it, you buy it. If you rip everything apart and start brand new overall from scratch, then you've also bought it and there's very little recourse if there's an issue down the way. Yeah, absolutely. And again, as you said, I think we've all experienced those scenarios. Again, I couldn't tell you necessarily which path is always best, right? Because again, as we said, it's time and money and some companies are just not at the scale where they could negotiate that kind of a, if you want to say retrofit or redesign, because it is quite expensive, right? So in my example, if I remember correctly, the unwind was something around like 40 or 50K, right? Just the mechanical with the PCBs inside and to retrofit it, it was close to three to 400K, right? So it's quite expensive to make that changeover. And at that point, Vlad, I'd almost ask the question if it wouldn't have just been less expensive to build from scratch as a, yep. or, or hire someone to go build it. Because if you're spending $500,000 on a what appears to be a very simple machine, it seems like there should be a less expensive way than buying it for one-tenth and then spending 90% or spending 1,000% more than the purchase price in order to go through the process of retrofitting it. So we've done the research at that point in time, right? And of course, I was a lot more involved in the electrical side than the mechanical side. And I think we had found that, I guess, building it from scratch through a machine builder, since we didn't have the capability in-house, was just as expensive. And then you would have to, like the cost for a second, third, because it wasn't just a single machine. If I remember correctly, it was like 15 that needed to be purchased within a couple of years. It was less expensive to go that route. And once the first retrofit is complete, it's the R&D money that's mostly spent. And then it becomes a lot cheaper on the second, third, and fourth, because then you know what the cost of the material is, and then you just reload the same software. But I want to, I guess I do want us to discuss a little bit deeper, like on the hardware side. And the example that I brought up again, a bit off stream, is I think that now there, and I think it relates to Garrett, because he worked in I.O., and he works in I.O. modules currently with Siemens. So the question then becomes, you see a lot of I.O. points behind me, and a lot of them are going to be specific, right? So they're either analog, they're going to be digital, and they're going to be low voltage, high voltage, and high, I mean, like 110. So they're going to be specific to that signal versus now, I think, Opto, but I think also Siemens as well as Rockwell and a few other vendors have released these modules that are configurable so you can essentially yep. put the same block for your entire rack and then stick that yep. in your control panel but then on the business side if i'm looking at this from a financial perspective those blocks mm-hmm. are more expensive and at this point i've not done the research to know how much but i think just the general thought is let's say you have a 200 dollars block that is non-configurable and so you have let's mm-hmm. say 10 different SKUs for that rack Versus, let's say your block is now five hundred to eight hundred dollars, and now it's a single skew for the rack. Yep. And so, how would you maybe have that conversation with either the facility from an external standpoint, or if you're an engineering resource at the facility, to say it's better for us to standardize? Because I think we all understand that it's obviously better to start just one part, but it's also a higher yep. investment at the beginning. So, how would you maybe like balance that out in a conversation? Absolutely. So I guess first and foremost, I'm a huge fan of universal IO, right? Just the ease of being able to carry one block with you as opposed to, hey, how many analog inputs do I have? And then am I adding an extra 10%? Am I adding an extra 20%? Am I going to have just entire blocks of IO that are floating as extras? Because I know I'll add sensors. I know we'll go add other things into the future. And then if you get past the first rack, then it becomes, okay, I need to add a second rack. Is it going to be a remote rack? Where are we going to go put the rack? How are we going to go figure all of this out? So IO is one of those things that at, I don't know, a few hundred or a couple of thousand dollars, a module or a block, 
is fairly inexpensive when you look at it. But when you look at the fact that the facility might have, I don't know, 100,000 IO points, then it becomes extremely expensive over, over the period of time. My, my concept of universal IO and part of the reason I love it is honestly, first and foremost, is ease of use and simplicity, right? I don't have to worry about analog versus discrete versus high voltage versus low voltage versus all of these things. And all of the items that you see back behind Vlad at the moment for our live viewers of all the different types of IO, the concept of just being able to go put one rack of IO and not have to worry about what I need, or I suppose have to worry less about what you need. The ease of use is very appealing on my side. Now, as to how much more expensive it is, I think there, there's probably a larger differential here today in, in 2023 than we're going to see in, I don't know, 2025, 2030. Yeah, for sure. I, imag I imagine at that point, we'll see most groups going to more of universal IO and a bit of a teaser. Next month, what we're talking all about factory hardware reinvented. And I know just from some of the prep calls we've had that, that we will be having some amount of conversation between of universal IO and maybe what the cost differential of universal IO looks like versus non-universal IO standard legacy IO. So for me, it becomes, A, it is a little bit more inexpensive, but if we look at it over the long term, and if it's only, let's say if it's 50% more expensive, but I don't have to have, I don't know, a module, two modules, four modules worth of extra blocks just floating there, and I could just have an extra eight modules of blocks floating there and I can put a couple of extra modules of IO, universal IO on the shelf. I think that overall cost-wise, it probably gets much closer to about even. And then when something breaks, because and we all know things break and we all know things break, I don't know, midnight on a Friday and no one wants to go into work because they're all out at the bar because we're done with work for the week. It becomes a we don't have to go hunting around of, do I have a, an extra module of this particular IO? And does the person who's going to go troubleshoot to figure out if IO is actually the reason versus what the other reason might look like? Are they capable of, of pulling out the other block? Are they capable of rewiring it? Like there, there are fewer questions that one has to ask when you have standardized on a single universal IO block as opposed mm -hmm. to half a dozen. And there, it's easier to go store on your shelves. It's less expensive to go store on your shelves. Even if you have, I don't know, one third of the total quantity of IO in universal IO on the shelf versus one of each of, I don't know, half a dozen different types of IO that you might have to stock and many people might stock or at least try to stock nowadays. So from my perspective, I think it makes a lot of sense. I'm excited about it. I think that as we see prices getting closer and closer, there'll be less and less of an excuse or less and or fewer and fewer reasons why more people aren't going into the universal IO. What are your thoughts, Glenn? Are you as excited about this as I am? Yeah, I definitely agree that by the fact that prices are going to come down and I think it's going to be easier to integrate. I'll be honest with you, I haven't seen how easy it is to just plug and play those blocks, right? So if if one needs to be replaced, for example, I would assume that you can just swap it out and it reconfigures because ultimately I know that a lot of effort is spent on, let's say for sensors, right? If you have a digital sensor, typically a facility would have usually a record somewhere that tells you like what the set points for that sensors were. And I've gone Hopefully. through exercises where that document is difficult to find. So I don't know if you plop that module in and it automatically like sucks out of the PLC all the configurations that need, I, again, I would assume so, but if that's the case, then I think it's an easy, I guess, no brainer. The other item that I think is important to discuss if you're considering this in a brownfield application, meaning that you have lines already running or machines running on IO that has not been standardized to that modular IO, then you need some kind of a plan to, let's say when the IO fails, we're going to replace it with this configurable IO. And then the question becomes, someone needs to set up that procedure initially so that, you know, when it does fail at any point in time, whoever is replacing it needs to reprogram it correctly. Or you do it maybe sequentially, right? If you have like line one, you essentially pull out all the IO, you replace it with universal, you put the 
IO that you've removed in stock. And then as you deplete that stock, you roll out, let's call it the second line, third line, so yep. on and so forth. So that there should be a plan to this. I don't think it's as clear cut as take all of your IO out, put the universal IO in. Otherwise, it would not be as cost effective in my experience. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I wasn't suggesting that we go rip out 100,000 IO points and change them all to universal IO because because we'd probably be down for months just trying to go figure all of that out. I, my thought on universal IO is more so on the looking forward stage, on the looking backward and how we replace everything that, that currently exists. I think mm -hmm. it's very much, I think we're very much to the point of we've got lots of legacy systems that need to be replaced as to if we all admit and agree that they need to be replaced and we can't get the parts or if maybe we don't admit that they're not all replaced or that they don't need to get replaced because that PLC2 has been running the facility for the last 50 years, Vlad, and we're just going to run it until it's run it until it's dead. That is a different story. But I agree. I think that there's large opportunities on retrofits, on PLC upgrades, on things like that to go strongly take a look at the universal IO. I would also say for a number of groups, it may not make sense in 2023 to go spend the extra money and go commit to more so unproven IO either within the facility. I personally have not seen tens of thousands of universal IO gone and deployed across the factory. To me, it makes right. very linear sense that this should be the way that we go into the future. If I were looking to go deploy small things, especially like the optos that you have up behind you, like the concept of universal IO on those make a ton of sense. But as we all know, from experience within this industry, changes are difficult. And just the concept of the concept of changing out a PLC for some people is inconceivable, much less the, hey, we're going to go change out the PLC and then we're going to go put this IO that is different than the IO that we've had and hasn't been around for 60 years. That may be too much for some groups, but I think that there will be marginal steps forward. And as we find, as more and more people are using universal IO, it's going to one, cause the cost to, to significantly get depressed and get pushed down. And I think, two, it's going to allow a bunch of different groups to say, hey, this makes sense for us. As we go build a new line, as we go build a new facility, we're going to go roll it out. And then maybe we'll go back migrate, what everything looks like from that point. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely agree. And again, maybe it's going to be interesting to see if the OEMs or machine builders or integrators are going to be the ones maybe that put those into their machines to make it simpler for them. And then the end users will adopt that versus, again, trying to roll that out from the end user side. So again, I think it could be done either way, but we'll see what happens in the industry. If we want to transition, I guess, more of a software conversation. So in my experience, there's a lot less standardization when it comes to PLC and control system software than there is on the hardware side. And I think we had that conversation with Bobby and the reason, yep. at least for me, is that hardware is a lot easier to understand and to make a case for, hey, we don't want to store like 10 different flavors of whatever that may be, a PLC, IO, like edge device. But on the software side, I think it's almost, as long as it runs, then it's good enough. Or again, if you're in certain groups, then they will simply receive that machine. And as you said, just download their own code, blow away whatever it was there on the OEM side and put in their own software, which I think is a lot rarer. I would seen, I would have seen the first case a lot more frequently. What, what have you seen, Dave, in the industry when it comes to software? Yeah, so I think when we talk about software, I break it up into to two buckets, right? So the first bucket and probably the most painful bucket for the majority of us on this conversation are all of the different softwares that you need to go program PLCs, to go program HMIs, and then all of the different versions of those. And I think Bobby mm -hmm. brought it up, right? Like, I think now, think PLC, everyone has like one known good VM that basically has all of the different versions of everything that they go build every, and they go build and work on every year. But I think the conversation has been, it's not been unknown that people like Vlad carry around two or three laptops and each laptop maybe have a, has a couple of VMs and each VM is a different version of, of Logix, of TIA portal, of any of those things. And 
the worst thing you can do is go show up on a site and you've got the wrong version. And then you spend literally the entire rest of the day in the following evening going and attempting to go find the old version that you don't have with you because you never have the right version with you and going through getting it and loading it on the computer so that you can go out and do it the next, go work on it the next day. And we all know that process is always 18 hours long. and You've always got people breathing down your neck while they are waiting for you to get the right version of the code. So I think that is one bucket. The other bucket and the bucket, I think that bucket is painful. I, I don't know how we are necessarily going to agree to get everyone to standardize on a particular version of software, of TIA portal, of logics, of any of those things, because this is just the position we've walked ourselves into. From my perspective, I think that there's a huge opportunity in order to go standardize interfaces, in order to go standardize operator and user facing systems within a facility. And I think we brought this up either when we were talking to Garrett or when we were talking with Bobby, because Bobby does a lot of work, lots of like large production runs and helps standardize panels and software for a number of different companies. And I don't think he said who they were, so I'm not going to go talk about who those companies are at the moment. But I've experienced kind of the flip side of we, we needed someone to go do this. I was working with a large in injection molding facility. They had, I think, two different companies worth of machines, and each machine had two or three different versions of that machine because they purchased them over the course of the last 20 or so years. And because they had done all of these things, it became literally that there was no congruity between even one version of the same manufacturer and another. And it became a, basically, if you needed to go and figure out how to go run the machine. It's basically like you're being trained on a completely new machine because there was, again, very little congruity from there. So I look at that as huge opportunities to standardize operator and other interfaces, because if we can go make those so that it is, it makes sense and we can go easily move from one machine to another, it goes and solves some of our operators and some of the other issues of, hey, we don't have enough people. Our people don't want to work. It's very difficult to train and retain folks. And so I look at that as a, a second major bucket of software. What are you seeing? What are your biggest pain points of standardization of software, Vlad? I guess maybe I like the buckets, right? And so to elaborate yep. a bit more on the first one, which is, I want to say, standardizing maybe the firmware on your control systems in order to reduce the amount of VMs that a site specifically needs to use. And I think that maybe if you're new to the industry or you haven't encountered these problems, it's a little bit difficult to understand, but I think it's not as simple as saying, hey, let's all go to the same firmware level on the controllers and tomorrow we just upgrade the firmware to let's say version 20 or version 18, yep. 16, depending on what that may be. It involves a little bit of, and when I say a little bit, I put that on quotes because it actually is quite a, challenging process, right? And I can give you examples that I think the biggest jump, at least on the Rockwell side, was from version 20, which is going to be on your RS Logics 5000 series. And this is excluding other platforms. Obviously, if you're going from RS Logics 500 to 5000, then it's a whole like hardware migration. But within the same family, if you're going from version 20 to version 21, there's quite a bit of a challenge in and what that means is you need to research which components work in which way and what's compatible and what's not compatible. And I remember a project involving a, a case wrapper, so the, a shrink wrapper, right? A machine that wraps a plastic around a case after it has come, come out of the case backer. And ultimately, all it is a heat tunnel, right? But you think, oh, that's a simple machine. Why can't we just upgrade it? Because the version... If I'm not mistaken, it was either version 16 or 17 had a different programming setup for your device net network than version 20. So you had to readdress using RS networks the way the servo, not the servo drive, the VFD drive was being addressed by the PLC. And so you simply could not just upgrade the PLC. You also needed to upgrade 
the motor drive to the right firmware. And so then it becomes like a rabbit hole. I'm going to upgrade the PLC firmware. Now I need to also upgrade the VFD firmware. And now, because that's on the same device net network as some of the remote IO points, you also need to upgrade that. And then at that version, some of the points of remote IO no longer works. So you need to purchase different blocks. And so ultimately that means you need to research a lot before you make that migration. So I guess just to illustrate that for some of the viewers or listeners who are not, maybe haven't encountered these problems, it's not as simple as, hey, let's standardize on one version. You really need to create a plan for this. You need to have a usually an engineering resource that is experienced enough to perform that quote-unquote audit and understand what we're going to do with each line because the challenge going, let's say, from version 9 to version, let's say now I think it's 34 or 35 is coming out on the Rockwell side is going to be very different than going from version 24 to version 35. And so all those nuances combined with the challenge, like you've mentioned, purchasing at a different time makes it a little bit of a challenge when it comes to standardizing when it comes to the same version of the software that's going to be used. And of course, if you have other platforms that are tied into your main platform, it, it makes it even a greater challenge to do. And then on the software side, when it comes to how the programs are made by the actual control systems engineers, right? So actually programmed on the PLC side, I think there's slightly different nuances. So at that point in time, you're starting to, or usually you would want to have a standard that sets up the program in a, I want to say like same way between machines you want to follow. Typically in food and beverage, you see a lot of PacML. I think there's different, I've encountered a lot of PacML like myself. I think there's other standards if you're in automotive that they follow. I don't really know the nomenclature. I think some of them were mentioned by, by Bobby, if I'm not mistaken. But long story short, I think that there's different standards when it comes to writing software for PLCs and control systems that you want to adopt. And we can have a conversation, Dave, around to what degree you want to be like very rigid or you want to be flexible on those. And I've seen, again, instances where it becomes extremely prohibitive where, and again, I'll share a quick story, a manufacturer of this roaster machine for peanuts had this structure where it's an AOI nested inside of an AOI that contained more AOIs. And so that was their standard, right? Like they're the machine builder, so everything's on AOI. But ultimately, that becomes so prohibitive in the sense that the AOIs start to use so much data in the program, and there's a lot of unused configuration modes for that AOI for that specific machine. And then it becomes also very difficult to troubleshoot. So again, if you've not experienced the sort of AOIs are simple in their in themselves, but once you start nesting four layers deep, it just becomes unnecessarily challenging. And so at that point, you have to say, is this standard really helping us? Or again, as the end user, and this is what happened, they had to eat the cost of reprogramming that entire machine into a non-AOI structure in order to facilitate the maintenance long-term. What are your thoughts, Dave? Absolutely. I've seen that with AOIs, with scripting, with a variety of other things. And what I have found is that it's either generally junior programmer who unintentionally leads you down the path of, hey, we're just going to go nest for AOIs within themselves. Or there is a very particular reason that the machine builder has picked that as their standard and that generally includes it's easiest for them, right? And in mm -hmm. this instance, there were a variety of parts of the AOI that were completely unused, but it would have been more work to go remove those parts or those different AOIs kind of nested for AOIs deep than it would just to go dump the program back on the same machine, make the connections that they need to make and be able to move forward. So I, I would to move this back to standards conversation and as I've said on the show a number of times, when I go talk and work with end users, my my hope, my wish, my, my goal, the thing that I beg is that we go pick a standard so that we can go work through it. And then from my perspective, the standard is the standard. There has to be a really good reason why we would vary from the standard, right? And I'm not saying that 
go build a standard that will encompass a hundred percent or even 95% of edge cases, go build a standard that's going to accomplish 80 to 90% of what your organization does every day and go capture the normal use cases. There will be things that you have to go build and expand upon when you get down to it, but it's more important to pick a standard and kind of build the standard structure, be it an ISA 95, be it an OPC UA, be it a spark plug B, be it a something or a pack ML, be it a something else, go pick the standard that makes the most sense for your organization. And that needs to be the standard. And then you have to enforce the standard. I've seen lots of times where people come up with this idea, this goal, this concept of, hey, this is the thing that we want to do. We don't know how we're going to get there. Let me go put out a request for proposal and go accept a machine builder. And the machine builder is going to go use their own internal standards unless there is one, a rigid standard that the end user is going to demand and to someone who's going to go check to make sure it fits within the standard. And I think that that is the most important thing. Very rarely are you going to get me to go suggest, hey, I think this is the standard of exactly how we should do it. I think it needs to be an important conversation of let's go down this path. We need to go down this path in order for the organization to be successful. Then let's figure out how we're going to continue to work down this path together. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree. I think it's a process and a journey rather than like a very fixed, like in time change, because ultimately, again, if you're an engineer and you're probably looking around you, there's different machines that have various standards of their own, right? That came in into the facility. And so you should be thinking about this. Well, like long-term, what would we like this to be? And I think that the first step is just to facilitate the learning curve of somebody coming into the facility and trying to understand what is going on inside of the code, right? And so I think the more obvious argument to be made is that the people that you hire will spend less time trying to figure out how can they have a positive impact in your facility, whether it is on the maintenance side or the new project side. But I think a little bit less understood is if you bring in other outside parties, right? So if you bring in, for example, a machine integrator or systems integrator to look at three or five different machines that have a different standard, chances are you will probably not necessarily realize it, but they will quote you a lot higher because they will have to spend the time and eat the cost of R&Ding and understanding the machine before they can accomplish whatever that may be, whether it is getting data or retrofitting or adding another component, right? So the point to the point of that like unwind system that I've talked about a little bit earlier, if every line is going to be different, then that cost to put in an unwind, even though the unwind itself is standardized to tie it into the control system of the line is going to take a lot more effort if it's not standardized versus when it is. And I think that those costs are not always as well understood because again, it needs to be someone who truly understands those differences and those nuances that comes in and says what the sort of the challenges are going to be. But I think it's starting to be better and better explained in our industry. And I think that there's going to be more and more conversations around this. So hopefully that makes sense. What are your thoughts on maybe challenges and opportunities when it comes to that, Dave? Absolutely. I have a couple of thoughts, but first I want to, we didn't say it in the beginning and we normally do. If you guys are new here, welcome. We generally have a very busy chat for whatever reason. I can see that the chat is not being pulled into our restream at the moment. So guys, please feel free to continue going ahead and chatting and asking questions. We do our very best to go ahead and answer. We do our very best to go ahead and answer those questions as they come in. And if everyone, if we don't get to questions, we will certainly get to them after the show. Beyond that, again, we want to shout out and thank Siemens for sponsoring this entire standardization in automation theme and for just their great general, their great support in general of the show and of the community. And then beyond that, Vlad, I think we've said standardization a ridiculously large number of times. I feel like we should have had a standardization counter and we might be at triple digits at this point. It feels like we've, we've gotten there, but no, I, I would agree. And, and I think that the use cases that you laid out as to the less standardization that there is internally, the more expensive it is to do projects. And that may be the precipice and the reason why organizations are like, hey, we need to standardize, not just because of all the benefits of data that we've talked to Jim about, but also because, but also because 
down the road, it will be less expensive to continue to build and it will be easier to go find people. I saw Caleb Eastman had a comment earlier talking about the need to standardize, the need to go make everything similar. And I don't know if it was when we were talking about universal IO or after is because we have to assume that there'll be less subject matter experts into the future because many of them are up and retiring. And I think that is a very good point. The easier that we can make it going into the future, the better it will be. I think Jim had a really good comment about how he's worked with a bunch of folks in pulp and paper, and he was part of or heard of this one group of people who were all be like that, who was digesters. And they had a group of, I don't know, six or 10 experts. And these experts all had like average, like 40 years of experience just working on this very particular type of digesters. And these guys, you have to go capture as much knowledge as you have, because it is very difficult to get anyone excited to go work on a digester and be the expert of digesters for the next four years. We also have to do a better job of going and exciting people to go work in some of these industries. But I think that it's very important. We need to simplify as much as possible because one knowledge is gone. It is gone. I've sat in a number of different groups. A couple of years ago, I was doing a bunch of troubleshooting with a kind of mid-sized refinery and they had a bunch of people and they had a number of people who had all been there for five or 10 years, but they pulled a guy back in from retirement and paid him as a consultant to come in. And he just had so much more memory of the things that they've been doing for the last 30 years. And we, we narrowed it down to a couple of possibilities. And he's, you guys are buying this much oil from this place. That is so different than what we've been doing in the past. When I left, we were buying, I don't know, 2% from this place. And now you guys are buying 10% or 20% from this place and causing a variety of different issues. So again, if we don't capture the knowledge and standardize our systems, it is only going to be more difficult into the future. And I think to that same point, Marcus in the chat is bringing in an interesting point. Let me see if I can pull that up. So he's saying that even if I'm building one of a kind machines, it is still possible to standardize something. It might be necessary to abstract quite a bit, but it is possible. See, and I think like this goes back to my comment or I guess my story with that roaster. So I think that if you apply standardization in an intelligent way, then you can obviously standardize certain components, right? So if you're working with, let's call it temperature sensors or gauges or valves or even combinations of those components, you can certainly create standard equipment software. And again, obviously on the hardware side, it's also possible to standardize, but just to keep it on the software side. When I think it becomes a challenge is if you try to standardize almost too much, right? And in the case of the roaster project that I've told you about, you can start saying, I'm going to standardize the same program is going to be applied to my roaster, but also to some kind of other burner. And also let's say to a conveying system, right? And you create that one AOI that can be reconfigured to every case. And that AOI becomes so bloated to the point that it becomes almost unusable in the long term because you've tried to abstract absolutely everything. So I think that the right standardization approach definitely is beneficial. But like I said, I've seen traps where it becomes a little bit too much and then difficult where you need to take a step back. And I think we had that conversation with Preston more on the business side, right? When he explained how they've over automated a process for the location of parts. But anyways, I think we'll get to that in a moment. I want to get your perspective, Dave, on that comment, and then maybe transition uh, transition us into the conversation a little bit about data that we had with Jim. Absolutely. No, I agree with Marcus, right? So even if you're building one of a kind machines, if you are the machine builder, you can have internal standards and that might be hardware and software. That may be, this is how I'm going to go write all of my tag name and tag name structures. It might be look and feel. There are lots of ways to standardize both internally as to how a business runs as a machine builder. And it's also possible as an end user to say, hey, I'm buying this one of a kind machine. This is the standard. This is the standard that we have. I need it to fit within the standard because these are the tags that I'm going to be expecting. This is what we build our HMI and SCADA off of. I need it to go ahead and directly connect in. If it's OPC UA, if it's MQTT, whatever that looks like, that is certainly what we need moving into the future. So I, I would completely agree with that. And then transitioning on to the conversation we had with Jim, I thought it was a really interesting conversation. I think that 
we have had many conversations of how do we standardize and the benefits of standardizing. I feel like Jim, as the comment that, that I just gave, I feel like he gave us a bunch of tangible opportunities, a bunch of tangible different ways that standardization it, that standardization is important on the data side, especially when we talk about contextualization, especially when we talk about how do we go take all of this data that we have and turn it into something useful because as we, we've all agreed and as we've all talked about, there is and will continue to be the need to go drive more conversations around data. We'll want more people who have less process experience to get into the data. And if we don't do a good job standardizing and contextualizing around it, it's just going to, we're going to lose all that knowledge and we're going to waste a bunch of people's very expensive time. Yeah, and I would add on the data side, again, like this translates if you're a facility looking to extract more data about a process and none of the control systems, both on the hardware and software side, are standardized, then I'm more than happy to come in, do an audit, and probably spend a lot of weeks, if not months, going through each machine one by one. But ultimately, if it is standardized, that job takes a lot less time and ultimately costs a lot less. And I, again, I want to bring this back to these are less tangible costs because the reality is, and I've been part of these projects, I would show up and there's 50 lines, let's call it making slightly different products, but they're so non-standardized that it becomes an exercise of me having to physically go to every PLC. Ideally, if it's on the network, then I can remote in from a room inside of the factory, but ultimately I would have to go in and one by one understand what's going on, understand which data points we want to pull, contextualize it, then bring it into some kind of an MES or database system where, the, where that data can then be collected, obviously processed and analyzed. But if it is standardized, then you can simply pull in the same instruction to extract the data into every machine. It becomes a lot a lot less complex and ultimately a lot cheaper for the end user. Absolutely. Absolutely. I certainly agree with that. And I feel like we, we've talked about this conversation on data so much. I'd like to put push ahead to the conversation we had with Preston, because I feel mm -hmm. like it's very much different. And even though it was different, I feel like it is probably as important, if not more important for a number of the, the groups and people that we talked to is very much kind of standardization of internal business processes. And I feel like Preston brought up a bunch of really good points. Again, we've talked to Preston a number of times on the show over the course of basically the entirety of the show. Is He was one of our first guests on episode six, which is absolutely crazy. And so we, we have certainly watched as he and Envision have grown from Preston and then Preston in a van driving around doing a bunch of service calls, doing a bunch of commissioning, starting to build some of these processes and some procedures. And I think he's got four employees now is what I think I remember he currently has. And they're getting into the machine building. And he is very much focused on how do I build the processes around so I can make, especially my, at the moment, most difficult tasks easier up to, and I think one of the good examples he had is onboarding, right? Whenever they onboard a new client or onboard a new project, they just have this group of hyperlinks that go and get sent. And they're like, hey, if you're looking for X, Y, and Z things, this is where X, Y, and Z things are. And they make the project as easy, both internally and externally as possible. And Vlad, I feel like this has got to be like near and dear to your heart of loving the things that Preston has been built on that side. So what are your takes on it? Yeah, I think because I've experienced a lot of those problems, even in very large organizations, right? I think that Preston certainly has a really good take on a systems integrator that is just getting started or is growing for the last, what, five or six years. But ultimately, I think that this approach is extremely important for larger organizations. And again, I can bring in a story. I'm not going to mention the name of the company, but in many instances, you run on SAP as your ERP system. And in some instances, I think that the software is so unadapted maybe to the maintenance or the engineering side that it becomes very difficult to, or prohibitive in terms of time to work with those standards, right? So I think that you can certainly fall in the trap of not having the right standards, but you can also, as we've discussed, I think a couple of times, Dave, 
have standards that are too difficult for people to execute, but also on not having standards. And I think that Preston had made this point to which I agreed a bit off stream. If you're in a maintenance department, one of the basic standards is having to know where you can locate replacement parts, right? And so if you don't have a really good standard and procedure in place, it becomes very time consuming to start chasing parts around and ultimately that causes more downtime and your production suffers, right? Ultimately that is impacting your OE metrics. And of course, to me as someone who has been through those troubles, it is extremely important to know how to address those challenges, but ultimately knowing how to navigate, I want to say the complexity of the human interaction, right? Because I think that when we talk about hardware and software, it's again, it's standardizing machinery, but in this case, you're building systems that need to appeal to a human audience. And so it's a little bit more fluid. And so the process then becomes, we want to maybe release a version one, get everybody's feedback, understand how everything works, then release a version two. So it becomes, I want to say different, but even more impactful than anything else in that scenario. What are your thoughts? I, I would agree with that. And I think not just creating the standardization is important, but I think making sure that people know how to use that standardization, right? So people are trained mm -hmm. on that standardization. I think, I think what we've talked about before, uh, I have a client that I do some work with and we basically over a lunch conversation uncovered that no one in their maintenance department knows where any of their electrical drawings are, right? Like they in theory have them digitally. They also have them sitting in a stack of papers, which is good because if they can't find it, they basically go take two or three hours of downtime every time they need to go find a drawing because of a combination of how poorly they are standardized where they are put in the electrical drawing formats and the fact that no one knows how to find them or how to get them, which just seems ridiculous. And so to that point, I think making sure that you have the standardizations are good, but standardization for standardization's sake isn't great. You need to make sure that people are trained and understand and go and use those and go and use those throughout the process. Yeah. And I think that's the point Marcus is making as well. And maybe to have the conversation and the comment of what Preston described and showcased to me and you a little bit off stream is the fact that he's built a really good repository and service where you can research the standards, you understand where everything is, it's broken down into some of the automation stuff, how do they standardize on hardware, software projects. So ultimately making the tools available to the right people is extremely important. And that's what Marcus is saying. We had a customer with a custom PLC code checker in the past. However, the checker was not provided to us and the rules changed constantly. At some point, we refused to take updates on the rules unless we have access to the checker ourselves. And see, that's, again, I think that's the new ones that we brought up a little bit earlier in the stream where I think it's not as black or white as should you follow the end user's standards, should you follow your own standards, there's going to be these edge cases where they have a standard, but they're not necessarily providing you with the most up-to-date version of, I guess in this case, the checker or even the standard if it was in written form. So it becomes difficult, right? It becomes, we have to do what we have to do in order to make the machine run, but we're unable to meet your standard unless you give it to us in whichever form it's going to be. But I, again, I definitely agree that it is give and take in the real world. I think that you need to have the conversations as early as possible if you're going to be working with a new customer, you need to understand their expectations and their standards before you engage in these projects. Otherwise, again, it can become fairly messy in trying to have those conversations as you've already begun to work on your project or you've already have your own standards. And it's, again, to the conversation me and you had off stream, I think it's not always that the end user is going to have a better standard than you. And so you can also propose that they follow the standard that you've set out in those conversations, depending on their size, depending on what their intentions are. And so you might be the vendor of choice that sets a new standard for them that they didn't have otherwise. Absolutely. I would agree. Excuse me. Absolutely. I, I would agree with that. I think that th those are all really good points. 
I think having standards are important, both internally for you as an organization and with the people who are your vendors and or customers. But standards cannot be the most rigid things in the world. The best companies are one that are open to new and different opportunities and always on, on the lookout to see how they can leverage new different technologies into that. To Marcus's point, I would say as important as standards are requirements of what a project looks like and everything along those lines to make sure that everyone understands what requirements look like. And at some point you have to set requirements, having a PLC code checker and then updating the code on the PLC code checker. I think we've all worked with clients who continue to move the goalposts, if you will, and it is very difficult. Yes, those are some of the most difficult clients I think any of us have to work with. And at some point you have to say, hey, these are the requirements. And this is the date that we sign the requirements. We'll go provide the code that will pass PLC checker at this point in time, or we'll just go through constant change order process, which to me isn't a lot of fun, but for some people it's how they make a bunch of money. No, absolutely. And again, I think it's, I think there's a lot of opportunities. I think that there's certainly challenges, but again, like looking from the positive side, I think that there is a productivity. I want to say, if I want to umbrella term, what the opportunity is. And if we have conversations more on the business side, I think that we've both work on Lean Six Sigma initiatives where there are standards that are already defined. And then you want to start rolling that out. And as you've mentioned, maybe you do that in steps. You need to make sure that the right stakeholders are aware of the standard. And I think that there's a lot of opportunity, I think, in many facilities. And I wanted maybe to get your take on rolling out some of those business standards. Do you have any like cases that you're able to discuss? What are maybe some of the pitfalls you've encountered, but ultimately what were some of the business opportunities after the standards have been rolled out? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that going and looking at them as a whole as an organization can sometimes be difficult, right? Because it's, hey, we're going to take X number of um, maybe sometimes years to go through to standardize on this processes or on these processes. So for me, as I go through and as I help organizations understand what these standardizations look like, it's very much the, hey, what is the, where are we currently? Where do we want to get in the future? How can we leverage standards to help us get to where we want to go into the future and help to create a better organization over the next X number of years? And then typically those use cases and those standards lead us to potential cost savings when it goes down that path. So a mm-hmm. good example is a good example is that lots of times you'll see that different organizations when they go do a project, have different standards. And as I described earlier with that injection molding facility that I worked with, right, everyone had different HMIs. And I worked with a number of groups over the course of, over the course of the last six or eight years who had a variety of different kind of looks and feels of the HMI. One group who, as normal folks, their name will, they will remain nameless, not blameless, but certainly nameless, right? And it was very much a, hey, because we don't have standards of interfaces, because we don't have standards of other opportunities or other needs, we have people who are just sitting at a computer kind of staring at RS Logics all day long, or some of them might be staring at TIA Portal all day long, just looking at interfaces. I had one group within the last, I don't know, year or so, Vlad, that the maintenance folks were telling me that every time they had a potential issue with one like 20, 25 foot tall machine, there was no way to go check the lights on the sensors other than to go get up on a ladder, climb the ladder, stick a mirror into this thing to see if basically if the lights were on or not, or the lights were right and green. I don't remember what the sensors were. And so as we look to standardize those, it becomes the how can we standardize the enablement of an organization? And it became a, hey, instead of causing you guys to go climb up and down ladders for two hours every day, which I'm sure is minutes, if not hours of downtime every day, trying to go figure that out. It's a, what if we just go, what if we went and we standardized a number of interfaces just across the line, just so that people can see that without having to go find a supervisor to log in, without having to go find a ladder to go, to to go climb up. And 
as we've talked about standards, I feel like we've talked a lot about overarching standards of what should an organization do. I feel like as we look at lots of business cases and lots of justification for many of these on the business case form, it becomes how can we very easily help reduce downtime? How can we how can we provide business value? And a lot of time that business value is enabling is the enablement and the stability of the folks working on the line. And mm -hmm. those use cases are have led to the as we go build the next series of lines, we need to go take these interfaces that we've built. We need to go have conversations with the folks on the floor in order to figure out, hey, what's going to make your lives easier? And then go through the process of making their lives easier, which leads to large business use cases. And I know you and I have had this and similar conversations over and over again. I feel like sometimes we're like, hey, if I pick a Sparkplug B standard, is that going to save me $20 million a year? No, it may. It's going to cost you some not insignificant amount of money as we go through the build out and the rest of this. The outcome will be easier to do X, Y, and Z things, but it's going to cost money. I think lots of kind of the standardization opportunities are on the interfaces, are on the how can we go help reduce major issues, major pain points that different groups are currently experiencing here today. And then as led, my hope and my goal is we take some of those cost savings and some of those wins, and then we can go push them towards other fun, other fun technology style standardizations into the future. Yeah, and I would say like for me, maybe outside of just the tech stack and perhaps because I've been in engineering and mostly data acquisition and understanding that side, one of the biggest, I want to say, wins has always been teaching people the root cause analysis, right? And it doesn't necessarily depend on which standard you pick. If it's 6W2H, the fishbone or the five Ys, I think it's really teaching that the people at a deep level, right? Not just giving them a piece of paper and saying, well, you're going to be responsible for doing this, but really yep. walking them through and then monitoring them and understanding what their deliverables are, what they're doing has yielded significant results. Because I think that data alone or technology alone doesn't necessarily solve all your problems. You really need to get the people involved. And I want to say excited, but ultimately better in tune with what needs to happen in order to drive those savings. So I think like for me, the root cause analysis has been like a really impactful standard that I've seen myself bring a lot of results. And I've also seen a lot of groups fail in the same manner that I've just described, where they read up about the RCA, they pick one of those templates, which you can find online very easily. They give it to the people on the floor. Of course, what you typically get from what I've seen is very superficial answers to that process. And sure Absolutely. enough, they don't take the time to learn the standard and appreciate what it truly takes to find the root cause. And then they don't see the results fast enough and they simply give up on it. And this goes back to my previous comments where I think that this is a little bit more nuanced and difficult to integrate than replacing a bunch of hardware or software, which I think a lot less people need to be involved in. In this case, it's the entire facility from maybe not necessarily the plant manager, but at least like the ops manager down to the operator that needs to be involved in that process in order for it to succeed. It requires time and effort from all of those parties. So I think that's a standard that is highly beneficial for many facilities. I, I absolutely agree. And I've seen the same issue with root cause analysis over and over again. And in fact, I think that the vast majority of people say that they do root cause analysis but if you try to sit down and do it in 20 minutes you are you're fooling your, yourself and probably everyone else when it comes to that but no i think that this was an awesome conversation but any last comments before we wrap up and tell everyone we'll see you next week yeah i guess i think that again to reiterate i think it's a journey rather than like a flip of a switch i think that standardization is going to continue to be driven by all parties. I think that end users are looking into it, OEMs, systems integrators on all fronts, both technical and like business processes. I think that our industry is going to get better. I hope that some of the outside, I want to say, driving forces like the ISA, the CISA, create even better standards right? as the industry matures. And I think that they will also be better and better resources for people to just go there and adopt standards that make sense for their industry. So that would be like my closing comments, Dave. 
Absolutely. No, I would agree with that. I think that Vlad, you said it very well as standardization was a journey or is a journey. And it is a journey of a lifetime for all of us. Some of us have, are more on the earlier middle stage versus the end of stage of that. But I think that Vlad and I will still be fighting the good fight, re-standardization in 20 or 30 or however many more years we have left to continue to talk about this and to do the work. But no, everyone, this has been so awesome. Thank you guys for joining us today. Thank you guys for joining us on Standardization and Automation presented by Siemens. Again, this is episode 126. We will be back next Wednesday. We're talking all about the about factory hardware reinvented. We've got a longtime friend of the show, David Nichols, coming back on to kick us off. We've got a bunch of great conversations that are currently planned. We've got a bunch of great conversations currently planned. If you guys are watching on LinkedIn, please make sure to follow Manufacturing Hub Network, which is where you can catch all the clips and everything that we have coming out. Please make sure you're following Vlad and myself, especially if you guys are watching on YouTube and all the other channels. Those likes and subscribes help a lot. We really appreciate you guys for doing that. If you've managed to make it this far on podcast form, please remember to hit the follow. Please rate us five stars everywhere you can do it. I have found that if I ask you guys to subscribe, you guys like and subscribe, and that helps us out a bunch. Until next Wednesday, we'll see everyone soon. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.